Welcome to Season 4 of Adventures in Jewish Studies, the podcast of the Association for Jewish Studies. In every episode, we take you on an entertaining and intellectual journey about Jewish life, history, and culture, with the help of some of the world's leading Jewish studies scholars. I'm one of your hosts this season, Aaron Phillips, and today we're going to delve into how gender is constructed in Judaism. If you were to enter an Orthodox synagogue for Friday night services this week, you might, when you walk in, have to choose the appropriate side to sit on depending on your gender. The men's side and the women's side may even be separated by a mechitza, or a partition. Whether we're conscious of it or not, each Jewish person's experience of Judaism is deeply intertwined with how they experience their gender. From the milestone rituals they celebrate, to the Hebrew words used to call them up to the Torah, to the stereotypes put on them by the media. But what happens when you identify as a gender other than the one you were assigned at birth? Maybe, for example, you're non-binary, meaning you don't identify with any one particular gender. Maybe you're transgendered or trans, meaning you've moved from publicly identifying as one gender, say man, to another, say woman. Gender expressions like these change the ways certain Jewish people navigate everything from Jewish law to modern ritual to cultural inclusion. And in many cases, they can create significant challenges to feeling accepted and affirmed as a Jew. Today, we're going to look at gender across Jewish history and into the present. First, we'll define the seven genders of the Talmud, examine whether they even count as genders, and look at examples of how they impacted ancient Jewish life. Then, we'll connect these texts to our modern practices, learn about the experiences of trans and non-binary Jews today, and discover how they're reimagining Judaism to be more accessible and equitable. In order to understand how gender is constructed and interpreted in modern Jewish communities, we have to go back to the beginning. No, not the first temple or second temple periods. The very beginning. Adam and Chava. Adam and Eve. Or so we've learned. As with many stories and passages in the Torah, there are multiple translations and interpretations of the creation story. Genesis 1.27, the verse that includes the famous line, male and female he created them, is often cited today as proof that there are just two genders, and that they're separate and unchangeable. But ironically, the rabbis of old had a different reading. They have an idea of a two-headed person who's back-to-back, the du partsuf, mostly found in stories or exegesis on the Bible. Those uh, listeners who've read Plato's Symposium will recognize that story or, or watch the movie Hedwig and the Angry Inch will recognize that story where the original human being is uh, a bisexed person in one human figure that later um, is split up into different sexes. This is Dr. Max Strasfeld, assistant professor at the University of Arizona College of Humanities and Religious Studies and author of the book Trans Talmud. What Dr. Strasfeld is referencing here is not some obscure reading of Genesis by a gender studies scholar. This idea that the first human was both male and female in one body prevailed among ancient rabbis, 12th and 13th century Jewish mystics, 
and many other experts throughout history. And it's just the very first example of a wide array of alternative sex categories and corresponding ideas of gender that can be seen throughout the Torah. Here's Dr. Strassfeld again. If you look online, you'll see that there are lists that say the six genders of Judaism, the eight genders of Judaism, the seven genders. So when people are talking about the six or eight genders of Judaism, they're referring to categories that are in rabbinic literature. And rabbinic literature, just broadly speaking, comes from the first six centuries of the Common Era. And it's the product of a movement of rabbis who debate various aspects of law, tell stories about rabbis, interpret the biblical text, and recorded in them are these categories of, of gender. So when people talk about the six categories of gender, they're including male and female, generally. They are also including an array of folks that, we, that fall under the heading of eunuchs. Eunuchs, according to historical definitions, were individuals who were born male and castrated, often to serve a specific social function. Many ancient societies created and employed eunuchs as advisors in royal courts, as spies, or as other types of servants or slaves. If you're a fan of the TV show Game of Thrones, you'll recall the eunuch character of Lord Varys, also known as Spider. Unlike Game of Thrones, the rabbinic texts don't cleave as closely to the classic archetypal definition of a eunuch. And our word eunuch in English comes from the Greek eunuch. But in late antiquity, when they talked about eunuchs, they don't quite mean the same thing that we do. So that Greek word eunuch originally meant, could refer to, people that were born eunuchs or people that underwent changes to their bodies, their anatomy, their genitalia, and became eunuchs later in life. When we think of that word eunuch, we tend to think of people who become eunuchs later in life through changes to their anatomy. The rabbis pick up on this Greek distinction of these different kinds of bodies that can fall under the umbrella term eunuch. And they also have the concept of someone who's born a eunuch, someone who's born without the capacity to reproduce. So their body is somehow um, different in a way that means they're not going to be able to have children. And somebody whose body undergoes changes and becomes a eunuch. So notice already that their idea of sex and gender is already a little bit different than ours. And also even this idea of what a eunuch is, is different. Within the broader category of eunuchs, the rabbis delineate several different labeled categories. Just a brief listener warning here, the chief way they make these distinctions is by discussing bodies and genitalia. So the saris, the the male eunuch, is a biblical word that the rabbis bring in, but they, they... add to it, they expand on the biblical framework by talking about these two different types of eunuchs, people who are born eunuchs and people who become. They also have an idea of a woman who's born a eunuch, meaning she's also born without the capacity to reproduce. She's called an ilonit. If you're keeping count of all the different categories, so far we have male, female, 
du partouf, our two-headed bisexed person from the creation story, eunuchs who were born or generally operated in society as men, called cerise, and eunuchs who were born or generally operated in society as women, called ilonite. There are two more categories, both of which Dr. Strassfeld identifies as androgynes. One is the androgynos, which for them uh, usually refers to someone with two sets of genitalia. And we know that because there's early texts that refer to their ability to menstruate and to have seminal emissions, indicating that they have multiple forms of anatomy that we would associate with different sexes today. And then there's the tomb tomb. And we just really don't have any analogous category to the tomb tomb. The tomb tomb is someone whose gender is indeterminate. And there are some descriptions that say their sex is covered up, their, their genital area is covered up by a flap of skin. Maybe that flap of skin is going to go away at some point and their sex will be revealed, maybe not. But the basic definition of a tumtum is someone whose, whose gender is um, not totally determinable at this time. The idea of the tumtum may be the hardest to wrap our heads around today, but it was an important part of the landscape of sex and gender stretching way back. According to the Talmud, the primary rabbinic text, Abraham and Sarah were both tumtumim. This is one explanation that's offered for why they were unable to conceive children for so long. For some listeners out there, though, you may be wondering what place these categories, with their focus on genitalia and reproduction, have in a discussion of gender. Are these genders? Here to explain is Dr. S.J. Krasnow, Assistant Professor of Theology and Religious Studies at Rockhurst University. I agree with arguments I've seen that it seems like at least in some cases they're talking, the rabbis are talking both about sex and gender, because it's not just that they will say something about the physical body, but they will also um, say something about what that fact, quote unquote, of the physical body means for social roles. Um, And so, and to me that immediately then kind of uh, transitions, if you'll forgive the pun, (laughs) into uh, gender. Dr. Strassfeld agrees that the lines here are blurry. He notes that the Talmud's entire system of categorization varies drastically from our understandings of sex and gender today. So the question is that we have to ask first of all is do the rabbis make a distinction between sex and gender? Is gender a relevant term? And it seems to me that sometimes they do. Sometimes they make a distinction between someone's uh, body morphology, genitals, aspects of their body, and what their legal role should be. In other words, how they should act. Sometimes they don't. It seems like it's all of one piece. Which means that they don't totally organize the world of sex and gender in the way that we tend to in the U.S. and mainstream U.S. culture. Which makes it a little tricky to call them genders. One of the things that's I notice when I look at these different categories in rabbinic literature are the ways that all sorts of things we wouldn't connect to gender at all, they think of as very relevant to the category of gender. So whether you're a priest or not, or the child, the daughter of a priest or not, has an 
impact on who you can marry in all sorts of ways is relevant to gender, social obligation, your kinship networks. Um, when they think about markers of sex for the eunuchs, they talk about body temperature as one way to tell whether someone's a eunuch or not. So they have very different ways of thinking about what makes bodies different from one another and also what's relevant information when we're thinking about someone's gendered social role or legal obligations. Because the rabbis interpret sex and gender so differently, it might not be surprising that many of the gender identities and categories we have today don't neatly map on to the seven we mentioned from the Talmud. In this episode, the modern identities and categories we'll be focusing on are non-binary, again, people who don't identify as man or woman, transgendered or trans, people who move from one gender identity to another, and finally, cisgendered or cis, people who identify as the gender they were assigned at birth. This is what many modern societies often consider the default. You'll also hear our experts refer to people who are intersex. This describes people who are born with both male and female sex characteristics that can sometimes influence how they express their gender. There are, of course, more categories, but those are the umbrella terms we'll be using. And you'll notice they differ wildly from the ones listed in the Talmud. The distinction, for example, between intersex and trans doesn't work for how they're thinking about eunuchs. Some of the people they're designating as eunuchs might be more analogous to intersex people today. Some of the people they're designating as eunuchs might be more analogous to trans folks today. So it doesn't neatly map on. One of the reasons it's so hard to parse these categories, what they meant, how they were experienced, and whether they were more like sexes or genders, is because their voices are not explicitly present in the stories of the Talmud. Besides a few well-known characters from the Torah who may be speculated to have some of these characteristics at certain points, like the previously mentioned example of Abraham and Sarah, we don't hear from the Saris or the Ilonit much. So if we want to understand how these sex and gender categories impacted daily Jewish life, we have very little source material. I don't have a lot of evidence for daily life of androgynes and eunuchs and what these, how these different sources would have impacted and shaped their experience moving through the world, um, what pressure, social pressures they might have faced. Um, we have some evidence from Greco-Roman texts, contemporaneous texts, but we don't have evidence from the rabbis themselves. The rabbinic texts that do address sex and gender hardly offer a clear picture for how these categories were experienced. And what's more, they often combine material that seems revolutionary and open-minded with material that is problematic and sometimes directly harmful. They acknowledge gender and sex differences, but reinforce assumptions that cisgendered men and women are the norm. They're also, as Dr. Krasnow notes, intensely graphic, and hyper-focused on genitals. It seems to me at least one possible reason why there could have been this fixation is because there's a fixation on reproduction and that there's a fixation on opposite-sex relationships. 
This fixation on reproduction can help explain both the obsession with reproductive organs and some of the restrictions we see in the Talmud, like the prohibition against sexual relations with an androgyne. And so some of these regulations seem to make sense in a context where you're anxious about that, um, that you're doing what you can to basically make it a part of the culture, essentially, make it, make it normative almost isn't even strong enough um, that opposite sex relationships are what's required and appropriate. Dr. Krasnow notes that despite centuries of cultural change, this obsession with heterosexuality and reproduction is something we continue to see today. It isn't a huge leap to sort of recognize that a lot of the, um, that we're just kind of upholding the same thing. We're continuing to uphold this idea that we have to make clear lines between who is man and who is woman. And it's really hard for me not to see that um, in ways that, again, connect directly to genitals, which I think is is problematic. Um, and that it just looks to me like the same stuff over and over again, like, like the um, raising up of patriarchy and the continued regulation of um, and for, sort of um, prioritizing of heterosexual relationships and regulating of bodies. Now that we've defined the labels of the Talmud, their status as both sex and gender categories, and how they impacted Jewish life historically, we're ready to connect these texts to Jewish practice today. In order to do that, we have to talk about the experiences of modern trans and non-binary Jews, and their ongoing struggle to make Judaism more accessible and equitable. First, we have to ask, how did we get from there to here? Shouldn't Jewish leaders have used these texts to think up a stronger, more cohesive approach to gender in the intervening centuries? In reality, up until very recently, rabbis have made decisions about trans, non-binary, and intersex issues on a case-by-case basis, with little coordination and social pressure. But that's changing. It seems like a new problem because we have new terminology and also new technology. Um, so having access to hormones and surgeries um, for people who want hormones and surgeries um, is a relatively newer thing. Thanks to increased media attention, the ability to connect and share experiences online, and advancements in language and technology, more trans and non-binary people today are able to find the right terms to describe themselves and to live openly. But despite cultural shifts, they don't always find a warm welcome. In 2007, Joy Layden, who had just become a tenured professor at Yeshiva University, an Orthodox institution in New York, was put on an 18-month administrative leave after announcing her transition to publicly identifying as a woman. 
Here she is in a 2012 interview with Congregation Beit Simchat Torah in New York, discussing what happened when she finally returned to teaching. I am the only openly transgender employee at Yeshiva University, and I think the only one at any modern uh, Orthodox uh, institution in the world. So um, I think what brought me to a lot of the work that I've been doing now is the fact that uh, the New York Post thought that this was really funny. And, uh, you know, Orthodox Jews are always good for a laugh. Transgendered people are always good for a laugh. When you put the two together, this is really fabulous. So um, when I returned to work um, as myself after years of teaching as a man, they put it on page three. And that's resulted in a lot of really wonderful opportunities to talk about um, Judaism from a trans perspective and to enter into some of the important conversations that Jewish communities are having about what it means to recognize and welcome people who don't fit within um, normative gender definitions. Here's Dr. Strassfeld with more on Joy Layden's experience. And she's written about this in her memoir, which is a, a gorgeous book, Through the Door of Life. She talks about how when she came out as trans, there was a debate about whether she could continue teaching at Yeshiva University, which is an Orthodox Jewish institution. And she talks specifically about this story that was in the New York Post, and anyone who, I grew up in New York City, anyone who knows the New York Post, it's not precisely the most reputable newspaper out there, but they quote one of her colleagues who's not an expert in Jewish law who says, basically, Jewish law forbids this. And it's not clear if he's referring to the, from what I remember of the story, it's not clear whether he's referring to the prohibition on castration. There is a prohibition biblically when it gets applied to humans. There's a whole complicated reception of this law from the Bible. Um, but that is one of the places where you do see people turning to that verse in particular to say that trans people shouldn't be allowed to transition. Of course, that's very specifically talking about certain kinds of surgical procedures and medical treatments that wouldn't apply to all different types of transition. But it's often used as a kind of blanket objection to trans people and transition specifically. These kinds of responses were unfortunately common as trans and non-binary Jews at the time began breaking glass ceilings. Alongside Joy Layden, in 2006, Elliot Kukla became the first transgender rabbi ordained by the reform movement. And as more trans and non-binary teachers, rabbis, and leaders emerged, the major branches of American Judaism recognized a need to formally embrace gender diversity. The reform movement in 2015 came out with a statement, and then later uh, the Reconstructionist movement and the conservative movement, but all of them came out with um, statements um, or resolutions, I guess they called them, supporting and welcoming trans people. So in the reform movement's resolution, um, they also make recommendations for what Jewish communities need to do to honor trans equality, and they are specific. I mean, I was encouraged to see that because, again, um, you know, you don't want just a claim of welcome, being welcoming. You want, you know, some points that people have to live up to and to de demonstrate how they're 
affirming or inclusive. Um, so they make recommendations like creating gender-neutral bathrooms, asserting the right to be referred to by one's chosen name or the pronoun that matches their gender identity, adopting policies that prevent discrimination based on gender identity, and so on. Um, but again, as one might imagine, the fact that they put that in their um, statement doesn't necessarily mean it's implemented, um, or it can be implemented in highly variable ways. And at least that's what I have seen in my experience is that there's not necessarily a consistency. In addition to recognizing trans identity, the conservative movement went on to acknowledge non-binary expressions in a 2017 statement. So CJLS, the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards, sets the conservative halakhic policy um, and also in 2017 acknowledged that the rabbis' uh, discussions of halakha were only relevant in that, one, they recognized that there were people who did not fit the halakhic binary, and two, that halakhic gender categories were not applied to them in a consistent across-the-board manner. So that is, I don't know, revolutionary, maybe too strong a word, but it's meaningful, I think, those kinds of conclusions, um, because essentially they're saying the, the rabbis acknowledged that there were people who were not simply male or female, female or man or woman, again, depending on if you want to use sex categories or gender categories. Um, and they also acknowledged that they weren't applied the decisions about how people should be understood as a result of those sex or gender characteristics were not consistent. And so there can be individual circumstances and, and maybe there often are individual circumstances um, depending on people's views of their gender identity, their bodies, um, what feels affirming and comfortable to them, and so on. It's hard to assess just how far these statements have actually gone towards promoting trans and non-binary affirmation in community spaces. While Orthodox Judaism is the only branch that has not issued a statement about trans and or non-binary affirmation, Dr. Krasnow sees some shifting sentiments among Orthodox rabbis. Here, they share data from a 2019 study conducted by Eshel, an organization that supports LGBTQ plus inclusion within Orthodox communities. 100% of the rabbis that they interviewed, and they interviewed rabbis from um, denominations all, or, or different ordinations across Orthodoxy, um, 100% of the rabbis that they interviewed said LGBT people deserve to be valued and treated with respect. Again, seems really encouraging. <laughs> 99% said they were aware of at least one member of their congregations or children of members who were LGBT. In, in, at least in what I've seen in histories, there's often been a denial. That doesn't exist. There's no one in my congregation who's like that, but I would be welcoming or those kinds of statements. Um, and you just like, I mean, I, I have a hard time not rolling my eyes when people say things like, well, we would be welcoming. We just don't, it hasn't come up. We don't have any gay people. Um, you do, they're just not out um, in a lot of situations. But 99% said that they were aware, and um, that seems relevant. The study also looked at specific practices that affirm trans people. For example, when a rabbi has studied particular Jewish laws, or halakha, that they can use to counsel transgendered congregants. Or when leaders have flexibility related to the mikvah, the ritual bath, which usually separates and assigns you an attendant based on gender. 55% said that they had begun to think about trans halakha. 64% would allow a trans person on the side of the mikvah that they chose. Uh, though, again, it's not clear how non-binary folks would be viewed in that context. 
So you have, um, you know, you, I guess you could see this as either positive or negative, depending on how you look at it, right? Um, slightly over half of these rabbis are thinking about trans halacha. You could see that as encouraging, or you could see that as it should be more than that. Um, that, that shows you a little bit more about where we're at versus the stat about being welcoming. As rabbis in every denomination of American Judaism seek to make their spaces more accepting, Dr. Krasnow urges that the best way to do this is to listen to trans and non-binary people and to let them lead the way on what they need to feel affirmed. It looks really different to empower trans people to be part of the leadership process um, and to create what needs to be created um, to make sure people are compensated for their work. Um, to show that identities and experiences are valued and part of the fabric of what happens on a routine basis in your space versus just like putting up a sign or a flag or whatever it is. So I think people, you know, and this is not just true, of course, of LGBTQ people, right? This is like any marginalized community within of Jews within Judaism. There's work to be done in terms of um, not just having, I guess, the sort of nominal acceptance or welcoming without the real genuine efforts and empowerment of people from those marginalized communities. This kind of elevation of trans and non-binary voices is still unfortunately rare in mainstream Jewish spaces. While many communities may look accepting on the surface, they can often forget about or even intentionally neglect the needs of trans and non-binary people. And as Dr. Strassfeld notes, this has deep impacts. So all of the ways in which we make our Jewish institutions less accessible for trans people and intersex people, those affect the pipeline and it impacts the ability of people to participate, to access space and to enter into leadership positions in the way that they may desire to, but may be prevented from in subtle ways and less subtle ways. But when these voices are lifted up, the results can be transformative. Deep as the sea, wide as the sky above. Each part of me is a gift of love. Bigger than words like As more trans and non-binary Jewish people have entered the clergy, founded organizations or institutions, or felt empowered to become community leaders, they've also begun reimagining Jewish traditions. Let's go back to the example of the mikvah, the ritual bath. Here's Dr. Krasnow. Increasingly, there are um, egalitarian uh, mikvahs or mikvahs that uh, specifically uh, serve LGBTQ folks and trans folks in particular, um, because it's one of the issues can be that mikvahs are um, often gender divided. And so also if you're non-binary, how does that work? Um, which, um, you know, <laughs> which are you supposed to sort of identify with and having to make that choice? So it, it helps that that is changing. Um, there are some 
spaces. There's Mimeheim in Boston area um, is one uh, where they worked with trans Jews and trans rabbis um, to create rituals for gender transition, where they've worked to make sure that there are mikvah attendants, right, who um, traditionally you would have someone watch you immerse um, or have someone um, guide you around the mikvah. Um, but if you want to have someone who's of the same gender, that they let that be of your gender identity, right? Not Again, not saying anything about your sex and the person having to match that. The mikvah is just one example of how spaces and rituals can be reimagined to serve a wider range of diverse Jewish people. The Non-Binary Hebrew Project is opening up gender expressiveness in traditional Jewish texts, including the prayers used to call people up to the Torah. Here's Dr. Strassfeld again. We just had a recent response that talked about how you call someone who's non-binary up to the Torah. So normally, your, your Jewish name is your name, and then you are the son and daughter or daughter of someone. So if you're non-binary, how do you navigate that language? And there was a suggestion to use mibate from the house of and as a way to circumvent some of the, the gender norms of Hebrew. So in a variety of ways, we're seeing the Jewish community grappling with all sorts of questions and oftentimes turning to the text to try and answer um, how to address these issues today. Even with something as simple as Talmud study, carving out an alternative, gender-inclusive space in which to study can drastically alter the experience. It can make it more accessible, and it can promote the kind of innovation around ritual we're seeing from trans and non-binary rabbis and thinkers. So there's uh, different queer and trans contexts where there, there's a real attempt to teach people who don't have a lot of background already, the Talmud. And the Talmud famously is difficult to access. Most spaces where you learn the Talmud traditionally have been for men. There are now more spaces that accept women, although not nearly as many as there are for men. But that still doesn't leave a lot of options for non-binary folks. So there are more of these institutions, groups that are working specifically with queer and trans and intersex Jews to try and make these texts available and give people the skills that they need to access them. I'm thinking in particular of Svara, the queer yeshiva, but there's other groups as well. We're even seeing new inventive ideas around the mechitza, the partition between gendered sections I mentioned at the top of the episode. Usually, there's a men's side and a women's side. And one of the things that has happened in recent years is, a, um, although I guess there's a, a longer history of this, but certainly coming out of like a queer and trans movement, um, there's a more recent history of a trihitza, so a third space um, in those prayer spaces. That And that actually serves another function. I mean, as you often find when you meet the needs of marginalized people, you uh, also meet the needs of other people, right? Uh, this is something that seems like we learn over and over again. Um, it's not just necessarily to serve queer and trans people, although it would be enough if it just uh, served queer and trans people. But oftentimes these trichetes of spaces also function to um, serve people who want an egalitarian prayer space in that same setting. All of these ritual reimaginings are not only reshaping Judaism for trans and non-binary people. 
They're creating space for all types of differences and needs. In 2016, after years of advocacy from progressive Jewish leaders, the Israeli government designated a protected egalitarian prayer space at the Western Wall, one of the holiest sites in Judaism. While part of the wall continues to be separated by gender, this third section is a space for everyone. The campaign for egalitarian prayer at the Western Wall may have been led by feminist groups, but it shows how prioritizing gender inclusion and accessibility can benefit many different types of Jews. And that idea applies to more than just the trihitza. So I think what this opens space for and what LGBTQ folks, um, religious folks, I think have always opened space for as they've engaged with religions is for a more personalized engagement, right? I mean, this is the thing. You have to create new ways of engaging and feeling affirmed if that identity wasn't understood as an identity at the time, right? So, I mean, we need rituals for trans Jews. Those rituals uh, didn't in any obvious way previously exist, so we have to create them. Um, but, but, you know, why don't we do that for all kinds of other experiences and identities? Dr. Strassfeld builds on this point by emphasizing how trans and non-binary Jews help enrich Judaism, not only by creating more affirming spaces, but also by challenging popular understandings of Jewish law. There's not a lot of rabbinic consensus on, well, most topics, but gender roles pose a particularly messy set of questions, ones with few definitive answers that can be found in the Talmud. Trans and non-binary Jews bring those questions to the forefront. And Dr. Strassfeld argues that this can shake up our understanding of what exactly Jewish law is meant to do. Part of what you see when you start to look at how the rabbis are discussing eunuchs and androgynes is the way that it's almost a futile enterprise to try and regulate bodies. They're not totally within our control. Think of all the ways we try and shape our bodies today. It's not just trans people who can't always grow a beard when they would want to. Lots of people can't grow a full beard when they want to with all kinds of bodily configurations, right? We're often frustrated ourselves about our inability, the stubbornness of our bodies, their, their um, ability to refuse to cooperate with our dreams and hopes and designs. So there is a, a part of trying to regulate all bodies, not just trans bodies, that seems in itself a contradiction, given the way that bodies are changing. They're a moving target, and they're not totally something that we can control. From the very beginning, the earliest Jewish texts recognized that sex, gender, and social roles were more complicated than just man and woman. And regulating bodies is an impossible task. Nevertheless, they sparked spirited, if often problematic and frustrating, debates in an attempt to understand and categorize what Jewish people experienced. While their arguments, story fragments, and opinions on Tumtum and Ailonit remain unresolved, today's gender-creative individuals continue to challenge and reinterpret those ideas. With a bit of halachic imagination, transgender and non-binary Jews are carving out space for themselves in a tradition that can often treat them as other. To a point that even those who identify as cisgendered are beginning to find the value in the accessibility these trans and non-binary thinkers are bringing. 
and have always brought to Jewish spaces. I think sometimes we don't realize how limited our Jewish perspective is, uh, particularly as our identities align with the dominant identities. And we need to be reminded by folks who are marginalized Jews about the many other ways that Jewish tradition has been interpreted, can be interpreted. Um, and that, at least in my view, th- those are valuable, um, at least equally valuable, um, if not sometimes more so for the fact that they can show us things that we aren't already aware of. For anyone to have the opportunity to feel more affirmed, more understood, they're having a more personalized and meaningful experience. To me, that seems like a positive for anybody, regardless of what their identities are. Adventures in Jewish Studies is made possible with generous support from the Sallow W. and Jeanette M. Barone Foundation. The executive producer of the podcast is Warren Hoffman. I'm the lead producer for this episode. Special thanks to Hannah Rothman for letting us use her songs Gender Blender, Holy, and A Better Way from her 2015 album Rainbow Train. If you enjoy the podcast, we hope you'll help support it by going to associationforjewishstudies.org slash podcast to make a donation. The Association for Jewish Studies is the world's largest Jewish studies membership organization. It features an annual conference, publication, fellowships, and much more for our members. Visit associationforjewishstudies.org to learn more. See you next time on Adventures in Jewish Studies. We-